We use the strength speed continuum. What that actually is, is the specific parts of strength that we work on at different parts of the year. And Mm -hmm. even within the off season, we have absolute strength. Mm -hmm. From there, we go in and we have accelerative strength. From there, we have strength speed and speed strength and then starting strength. Hey and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. In today's episode, I welcome Nunzio Signore, athletic trainer and owner of Rockland Peak Performance in New York. Nunzio also has a book called Pitcher's Arm Care, and he's the director of the Pitching Lab and a contributing writer for a few publications such as Inside Pitch, Elite Baseball Performance, and Stack Sports. On the show, Nunzio shares a ton of knowledge about how to properly assess the needs of players during training. But we also talk about how to assist players with strength and conditioning, velocity, and strategies to help them recover in a healthy manner. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Nunzio Signore. Nunzio, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm really interested to hear about how you got into the game of baseball. We were just talking off the mic about uh, your parents being from Italy, and and I, I, I love Italy. Man, I, I wish I could go there every summer and eat pasta and pizza and go travel around uh, travel around Rome and the Colosseum. But, but anyway, so sticking on the subject of baseball, how'd you get your start, and you know why did you decide to get into coaching? Well, I'm, I'm actually from South Philadelphia, and growing up in an Italian uh, community, you know, soccer is really the big, the big game. Uh, so I grew up playing soccer and I ended up playing at a very high level and got a scholarship to college to play soccer. And then after I got out of school, I realized that I was training in the private sector in New York. And I decided that baseball was such a more complex sport as far as um, the amount of in- that can happen. And there's just so much in the mechanics of hitting and so much in the mechanics of, of pitching that um, it's a lot easier to separate yourself from the average Joe who, um, for lack of a better term, is kind of just your average trainer who doesn't really take a lot of anatomy-based um, concepts into play when they train. You really can't do that with a baseball player um, because, because of you're dealing with the shoulder and the lower back and the hips and things that are so um, unstable to begin with naturally, and then you're adding really fast movements to them, this is creating a recipe for disaster if you, if you don't know how to train them correctly. So I felt like um, working on baseball players, and if you really, really know what you're talking about and you really get great results, it's a demographic that wants to be found. It's really, really, people are hungry out there to make sure um, the kids stay safe and you know we can increase velocity mm-hmm. and... Um, command and control safely. So it, it really separates you from the average sports training guys, not to knock, not to knock on anyone who trains lacrosse players or soccer players or anything like that. 
But when you're dealing with those particular joints like the shoulder and and things that are really unstable like that, it was it's really um, a lot of people stay away from that just out of um, honestly, just not knowing really correctly how to do it. So I felt like I was really good at it. And um, I just started training baseball players and it really, really worked out well for me. Absolutely. And I, I love following you on social media and you have written a blog post every week for what seems like several years in a row. And, and that, that itself takes a ton of dedication. And so let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump right in from the player development standpoint and say, I'm going to make it really hard for you. Say I'm a 16 year old pitcher and I walk in the door. What's the first thing that we would do? And I just say, uh, Nunzio, I, I would love to be trained by you. Uh, where would we start? Well, we'd sit down first of all, and we would do a park queue, and we would check out um, any any previous um, history of injury, and um, this we would do an assessment. The assessment in in our facility that's the cornerstone of what we do here at RPP. Um, I, I honestly believe that it's the way to create a blueprint for an athlete to figure out, you know, wh- it's like a GPS where we can actually um, where we need to take this uh, young athlete and what to do. So the first thing you would do is you would uh, you would get an assessment. From there, we would, uh, do you wanna talk about the assessment or do you want me to actually uh, just give you the steps and we can get into the assessment later, it's up to you. Uh, do you mind going going into that a little bit and you know, just take, in, take into mind uh, that most of, our, most of our listeners are team coaches who, and for me myself, I, I'm very curious about the assessment process because I've not been certified in anything and, and it's something that I wanna do and continue to do this summer and then going into next fall, do you mind walking us through what you do for your assessment? 100%. So assessments basically, they're an integral part of how we evaluate and train pitchers and ballplayers. So without them, I honestly feel like you're basically flying blind Mm -hmm. and you're not really able to maximize an athlete's potential. So it tells us a lot of things about an athlete's strategy or in other words, how they get from point A to point B. So by observing an athlete's movement strategy, we can better understand like, you know, his or her weaknesses, links in the chain of movement, design a program that helps correct those weaknesses. Some guys are, like we say, have laxity. They're really loose. So they need more stability than stretching. Some guys are just naturally tight kids. They need more stretching. You know, mm-hmm. it allows, it allows uh, them to be more successful on and off the field. And it, it helps us to train them and reduce the risk of injury, you know, getting them to uh, figuring out their movement patterns can help us uh, train them and coach them in the weight room because a lot of guys, you know, you don't want to add strength to dysfunction. So we figure out, you know, does this kid have a good squat pattern? Is he tight? A lot of the things we look at, do they have tight lats? We do a full scapular development. We look at their scaps. We see how they're moving. How's their upward rotation? Are they moving in their lumbar spine at all? We check T-spine rotation. We check hip IR, ER. Um, we check shoulder ER. We take them through the whole movement on the table. That's the table portion of the uh, of the assessment. That's they're generally on the table for about 25 minutes. From there, we bring them into the weight room and we put them on force plates and we check their force output into the ground with their back leg and we see how much force they're accepting on the front side with their front leg. And this can tell us a lot about you know are they pushing into the ground. What do they need? Do they need more back leg force? Do they need more eccentric force to help them control that weight when they land? Um, and it tells us what kind of type of plyometrics they might need um, as far as training them in, their, in, in the weight room and on the field. Then we'll do kinematic sequencing. Kinematic sequencing is a really cool thing, motion capture. 
we put sensors on the pitchers and we have them throw while we're doing a video analysis of them, a four camera video shot that we can do and bring them into the office and show them video. We also do kinematic sequencing where it really shows us the sequencing of, are they moving? We wanna see the pelvis, then the thorax, then the elbow, and then the shoulder internally rotate. And we wanna make sure that they're sequencing right. Cause like a lot of kids have different mechanics and before you go messing with a kid's mechanics, um, you wanna make sure they're sequencing right. Cause the one thing we know for sure is that everyone should sequence pelvis, thorax, elbow extension, shoulder uh, internal rotation. If they don't have that right, that's the first thing we really gotta fix. And then we, we shoot video analysis of them. And if need be, if they're with a the little bit more of the older guys, we'll put them on Rapsido. And my pitching coaches and my partner, Baram Shirazi, they'll, um, they'll analyze, they'll throw a bullpen in Rapsido, and we'll look at their ball movement. So we're trying to really cover the bases of an assessment from all angles to kind of really try to develop the, the, you know, the perfect storm for these guys, the, the actual best way to train them um, in the weight room and behind the plate if they're hitters or on the mound for pitching. Perfect. And so where, where would you go from there? So you, just based on the assessment is how you'd build the entire program? Yes. So what happens is they're here for about two and a half hours on the first day. That's their test day. Uh, they'll throw a 20, 25 minute bullpen in Rapsido. Um, and the rest of it is all the other parts of the assessment. From there, we'll, we'll show them their video analysis. And then the next time they show up, we will design a program and we'll have it designed for them. Now, it depends if we're talking about the off season, which we're probably talking about the off season first, correct? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So if it's in the off season, most of our guys train. If they're the really young kids, 13 to 15, they generally come in two times a week, maybe three times a week. But our older 16 plus guys, they're coming in three to five. They're coming in three to five days a week. So they let us know what their schedule is going to be. And we can either give them a three or a five day program. The really young kids, they can't train on their own yet. So we have groups that meet two times a week and we base them on age and we put them in, in age groups that uh, allow them to excel and we'll have their programs ready for them. I love that. And I, and I love the group training aspect, even even if you are uh, going to a facility to do that. I, I'm a firm believer that, that competition is, is awesome. And then you're there with like-minded individuals and that's only going to make you better. But when you're looking at a lot of the different assessments that you're doing, is there anything that sticks out that a lot of kids have problems with? 100%. I can tell you right off the top, Loading their lower half, okay. glute load, the ever elusive glute load. Most of these young kids are quad dominant. They mm -hmm. simply really, they don't know, they're not really familiar with their bodies that well yet. So they don't have the ability to really hip hinge yet. They don't understand a hip hinge. Lance Wheeler always says that you, if you can feel it, you can do it. Sure. And um, the think the key with the young kids, um, we see that most of them struggle with a hip hinge. A, because they've really never been in the weight room that much. So they don't know what a hip hinge is. They don't know what it feels like. And also there's just a strength issue with 13, 14, 15 year old kids before they, their bodies start to change that makes them not able to actually really support themselves and get into that hip and they end up becoming quad dominant. So what happens is they'll start to orient their body towards the third base dugout. Mm. And then you'll, you see it a lot. And that knee comes over the, that back knee comes over the toe. Then they land closed. Then they've got to cut their balls across, leaves their curveballs hanging leaves them throwing high in arm side and a lot of algus stress on the elbow. That's the biggest thing we see with uh, the young guys that train with us. Sure. And talking about the glute load and, 
And that is something that we see in hitting a lot too. They get up on their toe instead of holding down on their heel and, and actually loading the, the posterior chain and loading the glute. And that's, that's not, is that something that you see from hitters as well, or just in pitching? 100%. I mean, okay. if you look at the, if you look at the kinematic sequence of hitting and of pitching, it's almost identical. So you still want that hip shoulder separation. You still want to load that glute in the loading phase of the swing. It's yeah, it's, it's very similar. We do the exact same thing. Oh, I love it. And it's something that, that man, I, I've been harping since this fall and we've been trying to get guys into a, that, that better hip hinge position and obviously loading the glute and, and being able to continue that forward. And, and so are, are there easy ways to teach that or is, is it just something that you've just got to talk to them and get them to feel through it? I think what we do is a lot of times um, we have four camera video analysis in the nets. So a lot of times we'll put someone with great uh, technique up there like Zach, like a Zach Greinke or someone like that who has a nice glute load and we'll show them so we can give them the external cueing of actually seeing what they do. But we'll also in our in, in our in our pitching lab and in our bullpens guys that need to glute load we will strap a core velocity belt on them. Um, we use the core velocity belt a lot. Okay. And it, 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 we really, really find that it helps. And we take before and afters after about, about an eight-week program with the core velocity belt. And we can really see a great change, you know, along with some good cues sliding down the banister. Uh, you know, sometimes that works. Different cues work well with different kids. Um, sit in the seat behind, sit in the seat next to the person next to you. There's different things we do, but we really just want them to start to feel that and give them a tug on the core velocity belt and letting them feel that lower half, getting back into that lower half really seems to help them a lot. I love it. And that's, that's, that's awesome. And, you know, something else that you've written about that I really, really enjoyed reading was the, the baseball strength and speed continuum. And, and I, I really, a couple of years ago, I just wanted guys to be big and strong, right? And probably at the expense of, of movement a little bit. But do you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about that article? And, and I can link that for, for us in, in the show notes. But I found that truly intriguing. And so I'd love for you to go into, into some detail about that, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, we use the strength speed continuum. What that actually is, is the specific parts of strength that we work on at different parts of the year and even within the off season. So uh, we, if we're starting over all the way to the left, for me, it's the left. Some people start on the right. I start on the left. All the way over to the left, we have absolute strength. Mm -hmm. From there, we go in and we have accelerative strength. From there, we have strength speed and speed strength and then starting strength. So absolute strength, this is the beginning of the off season around November. These are, this is really... Um, three to five reps, you know, 85 to 95% of their one rep max, you know, low reps, very little conditioning at this point because they've just gotten done playing a lot of them playing all summer as well. So the athlete has just finished being explosive and playing baseball. So we're really trying to emphasize strength training using big movements like deadlift squats, pressing and pulling movements. And that's what we kind of do through November and December. And we, we use absolute strength. From there in January, we move more into strength speed. This is because bullpens are starting, throwing starting, batting is starting. We're adding more explosive lifts and we're working in that second more accelerative strength range, which is like 60 to 80% of a one rep max. And um, they're still lifting a fairly heavy amount of weight, but 
We're not letting them hold heavy weight in their hands, uh, especially for our pitchers. We try to keep the deadlift volumes a little bit more explosive this point in January because they're throwing. We don't want to make the lats too tight. It causes a lot of downward rotation of the scaps, depression, and uh, it makes it a little hard for them to get overhead. So we're keeping that. We have throwing in mind. You know, we're doing a lot of throwing. Throwing has started. So um, we'll do what's called post-activation potentiation in the strength speed zone in January, which is they will lift with accelerated strength or a little heavy. Okay. And then they'll immediately, they'll take about a minute break and they'll immediately go to an explosive set of maybe three jump squats and they'll they'll potentiate the actual muscle. Okay. So for, I'll give you an example of sure. that. They'll, they'll do maybe five uh, trap bar deadlifts at 80%, and then they'll take a minute break, and then we'll have them do three jump squats um, as quick and as explosively as possible to use that posterior chain that they just activated with strength training. So we're still in January creating a strength uh, adaptation while we're starting to introduce them to being explosive. And that's the strength speed side of things. And then in February, we move a little bit further onto the speed side of power, which is speed strength. And the main focus there is to, you know, apply the strength we've acquired in the offseason and start getting explosive and create power in movements that will start to translate over to endurance on the field. So in addition to our strength training, we'll start to do transitional sprint work. We'll start to do plyometrics are ramped up at this time. And um, we're using weights that are more like 20 to 40% of their one rep max. And only one day a week will they do any type of heavier strength training. Because at this point, we're really in February and we're trying to get them as explosive as possible. So we're, we use all of November and December with that absolute strength. And then we go in January to strength speed. And then in February, we move to our speed strength. And March is basically speed. Speed is basically game time. Okay. So it builds them all the way up. So we can slowly, I mean, a lot of guys come in and say, hey, can you make my son faster? Yes, we can make him faster, but your son is 14 years old. He's never been in the weight room and um, he really can't put a lot of force into the ground. So he's not going to be able to do it quickly. So this way we start in November, get them strong and we bring them all the way up and we don't even start to teach them how to get fast until the end of January and February. Once we've built up that good, uh, that good base of strength. Oh, absolutely. And and I love that. And and so we were running 30s this fall and our strength coach, uh, he, you know, the guys that were faster were able to to put more force into the ground quicker. And he was pointing that out to me. And, and it's something that I'd noticed, but it was really interesting to hear that that side of things, because I look at it from a coach perspective for the most part, but getting to hear it from a strength side, it, it, it is really interesting. And, and another article that that I read this past week, you know, gearing up for this conversation was the one about the, your pitching lab and wow, you, you guys have it going on. So just tell us a little bit about that and tell us what you guys have going on there. Well, the pitching labs, are, we think is a pretty unique training program and it's specifically designed to produce the complete pitcher. Uh, it's somewhat of a merger of strength training in the weight room and pitching inside the nets. It involves throwing two times a week, Frankly, I think it's a must that pitchers, I mean, up here in the Northeast, I just have to say that um, a lot of times we don't throw enough up here because of, you know, weather restrictions. And, and I think sometimes down South and out West, I think sometimes guys might throw a little too much, but I think there's a happy balance. And I think in, in, when pitching starts in January and February, I really think that you have to throw two times a week in preparation for the spring. Um, throwing once a week does not allow the connective tissue of the arm to develop the resiliency necessary to, 
you know, resist those demands of a high level throw. So for all our guys that the throwing is two times a week, it's 30 strength training sessions and 19 pitching sessions. For our older guys, it's dependent upon how many days a week because they're training on their own. So most of those guys, it's always two times a week in the bullpen. And um, then the older guys are coming probably four or five times a week lifting. And the first part of it is um, the young kids will be taken through their soft tissue work and their, and their movement training with our coaches before they get into the tunnel. Um, the older guys, they kind of know how to do that on their own because they've pretty much developed a, a good workout rapport from being here for a while. So they know how to do their own soft tissue work. Okay. They're grouped in ages 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. They're all grouped. They're grouped in those pairs. And when, once they come in, based off their video analysis and their test day that we did at first, we ramp them up for the first couple weeks with corrective drills that we design, whether it's some guys, like I said, or have a lack of a glute load. Some guys are pulling that glove side a little too early. It's making them making them come around the up. They're, they're op opening up their upper half a little early, losing hip shoulder separation. Some guys have problems posting up. You know, so depending upon, we kind of look for like the big five, and we try to give kids like you know two or three corrective drills that we give them for the first fifteen minutes of every session. So the first fifteen minutes of every session are those corrective drills. Okay. Um, and then oh. from there, yeah, from there they do long, they, we, we, we hit long toss for about, mm, I'd say maybe 10 minutes and then we do mound work and we start on the mound work. From there, we uh, go, their, their bullpen is done and they go into the strength training and they go into the, in, into the weight room and they're met, the young kids are met by coaches and bring them into their class. And then the older guys, they just grab their programs, their individualized programs, and they go out and they, they actually uh, just work out on their own. No, I really like that, and and I that takes a lot of ownership on and puts a lot of ownership on the kids to be able to do all of that. And, and I'm sure most of the kids that you guys are getting are obviously very dedicated in their process. And and I love to to hear about that. Um, it's very interesting because we do get a lot of like say quote the really stud guys around here. But honestly, the biggest thing for me that makes me feel great is to get the kid who didn't make the team last year mm -hmm. and have him make the team this year. Awesome. I actually get a lot of gratification as a father to see a kid who didn't make the team make the team the next year. For me, I mean, you know, honestly, anybody who tells you, you, you get a division one guy and you get him come in here, we're making him better. But you know what? He's a division one caliber guy and you're, you're doing a great job with this kid. But getting the kid who didn't make the team make the team. That's really something. And I, I'm getting to a point where so making the point I'm trying to make is that those kids, those young kids that aren't quite as genetically gifted, they seem to be the ones that embrace the soft tissue work and the mobility at the top. They seem to take that um, a little bit more seriously. I think sometimes um, I notice with the older guys, a lot of times they think maybe that, you know, they just don't need to do that anymore. And it takes, it's, it's really, that's one of our biggest challenges in a, in a strength and conditioning facility like ours mm -hmm. um, is to really hammer home. Hey guys, you know what? Not only do you need to do this as, as well as the, as the younger, weaker guys, you actually need to do it more because you're actually throwing harder. You're throwing more frequently. You're getting used more. Your, your body is going through more stress actually than theirs are. So you, you need to do it. And that's, it's a really, that's the biggest, biggest chore. And the biggest mission of ours is to really, really instill in our guys the importance of arm care. I love it. And you talked about 
your corrective your corrective stuff now are are you talking about from their assessment or from just based on their throwing mechanics well on their assessment we're checking hip uh, hip ir hip er glenohumeral er ir t spine rotation a lot of stuff that may actually transfer over into why they're having mechanical issues on the mound mm-hmm. but we first base we first base when i'm analyzing video of these kids i pick the top 3 things i have them i have them ranked if i see a lack of glute engagement that's number 1 that's we're we're going to make them engage the lower half and once i see that that's number one. Okay. Number two, I really like to look at that glove side. I really want to make sure that they're, they're, they're waiting to pull so they can keep that top side closed. And a lot of times, if, if a kid is coming around early with his upper half, that might be an issue that we found on the video that actually is caused by something we found on the table. So an answer to your long, long-winded answer to your question is, yes, we give them the correctives based off their video. But a lot of times, if the correctives aren't sticking, we then know we have to go back and we have to look at the table and we have to see, you know what? This kid's not doesn't have much, if any, IR in his back hip. And if there's no IR in the back hip, that's going to, when it runs out, the upper half goes. Mm-hmm. So we need to maybe double up on the amount of hip mobility stuff that we gave him. And and that's the object of a of the pitching lab. It's like a it's called a closed loop training. Mm-hmm. So we use video, but we don't sleep on what we see on the table either. So it's a combination of both, actually. No, I love the short, simple answers that are long-winded because I love hearing about the different context of, of what you're trying to do. And and I, I those are the absolute best answers that you can give. And another thing that you've talked about a lot, and it's something that we have to deal with a lot in the South, and that's when do we take time off from throwing? And there's so many different sides to this because, you know, you hear they need to take two, two straight months off and, and I, it obviously it all depends, but you know, what should we be looking at in regards to time off, uh, for each player or for the team and just kind of walk us through that process of, of how you go about that as well. Well, I think that every kid, like you said, every kid is different. Some kids can handle the stress of throwing, uh, a little more than others, but We do personally here at RPP with our high school kids, um, we have a mandatory uh, November and December, we have time off. It is not complete time off as I honestly don't believe that we should ever completely stop throwing all year. But let me just say that in November and December, the throwing that I'm talking about is light catch for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I just don't ever think we should get out of the pattern of throwing. It's not 10 minutes of light catch is going to do nothing personally to me. Everyone has their own opinion, but personally to me, 10 minutes of throwing is not killing anybody, especially if it's light catch. So we, we take those, we take those two weeks off. And I also, you know, I really encourage guys to, uh, you know, think about fall ball and are you really, really, do you really, really need to play fall ball or is there stuff we can do in the gym that is actually going to help you more than just uh, pitching, you know, five innings a week or whatever it is. We can work on a lot more things. That's why we developed a a development program for pitchers in September and October as well as a replacement to fall ball and the tournaments. You know, don't get me started with the tournaments, but sure. that's that's uh, 
Eric Cressy, I can't even remember. Eric Cressy had a great quote. I think it was like, take the money you're going to blow on fall ball and winter showcases and spend it on food, training, and books. Mm-hmm. And that quote, that quote really, uh, that, that, that holds true with me. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. If you're a kid and you're throwing mid eighties and, and above, and you don't have a school yet, by all means play fall ball and, 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 uh, go to those tournaments and be seen. But if you haven't, if you're, if you're still trying to get your velo up and you're not real or your, or, you know, your exit velocity, or you you don't really, you're not fast yet. And you're having trouble changing directions and, uh, you know, you're not strong. Um, I think you're, you're well better served staying, uh, September and October and getting yourself strong, working on your pitching, working on your development and not basically showcasing yourself off the list. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids, a lot of kids will go there. They feel like, you know, they have to get that perfect game number. And I mean, quite honestly, between you and me, I don't think anyone's, um, writing home about a kid who's throwing 76 miles an hour in 11th sure. grade. And he's trying to get, you know, and he's going to a tournament. I think he should be spending September and October trying to put on 10 more pounds of muscle and actually trying to get his velocity up. Let me take a few seconds to tell you guys about OnBaseU. OnBase University is an organization that studies how the human body moves in baseball and softball. They offer certification seminars that teach coaches, trainers, and medical professionals how to assess an athlete's physical ability to perform movement patterns that are specific to hitting and pitching. For example, they just put up a blog post on their website, onbaseu.com, that discussed why hip internal rotation is important in hitting and how they evaluate it with their OnBaseU screen. If you want to learn more about OnBaseU, I did a podcast with the OnBaseU founder, Dr. Greg Rose, episode 78, and he talked about how he modeled the screen after golf assessments that he created for TPI. They are hosting pitching and hitting seminars in Phoenix, Newark, and Houston over the next few months. I will be attending one soon, and I hope to see you there. No, I'm right there with you, and yeah, I think uh, hopefully that is shifting, that instead of paying for showcases, pay to actually develop yourself and to get better and have something to showcase, and I, I'm right there with you. And so we're... a uh, we just started, you know, and, and we're right in the middle of, well, at the time of this recording, we just started, but most of people at the time of our listening are still in the middle of their seasons. And so another question that that I really like to ask, and I, and I get a lot of enjoyable answers is what makes up a good bullpen setting? That's basically what we, uh, what I was explaining to you in, um, in the pitching lab. Mm-hmm. One of them, first of all, great coaches, you know, that's the end all. You know, a coach that can keep a kid engaged and knows how to verbally and externally cue a kid and really teach them the right way and have available video. I, we love using video with younger kids. Some kids need to see it. Some kids need to feel it. Some kids need to hear it. Mm-hmm. So we have all these things available to us. Progressive intensity to the mound, which means um, we'll start with our warm-ups We'll start with our corrective drills. We'll go into our corrective drills from our corrective drills based, but depending upon what time of the year it is, where we are in the, in the pitching lab or where we are in that eight to 10 weeks of throwing, we'll start doing command and control training. And then after the command and control training, we'll start with our high intent pull downs and then uh, we'll start getting them ready to throw. So basically, you know, for the bullpen, great coaches, um, having video available, progressing to the mound long toss, um, corrective drills every week and prior first. And then 
depending where you are, either command control training or high intent throws, pull downs. And then we progress right up to the mound on every bullpen and we work on, you know, pitch selection. Fantastic. Man, I think this may be a million dollar question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we develop command. Okay, that's interesting. I, I have to tell you that the first way that I've actually got into that was uh, from Ron Wolferth. I heard I heard Ron Wolferth talking about chaos training. Mm-hmm. And I was actually I actually took a visit down there and I watched him putting putting athletes on different leveled ramps going in internally and externally out of of the pitching delivery. And I thought that was a great idea to make the kid learn how to adapt to different various stressors. And then um, recently I saw that uh, Kyle Bodie at Driveline was talking about how he takes those stressors with different weighted balls and it gives the athlete immediate feedback while they go through similar you know, ballistic mu- movements with, with new stimuli. So it helps them make adjustments and improve the feel as they're completing the same task with these small variations of the weighted balls. And it doesn't just have to be a fastball. You know, pitchers can just as easily work on throwing with secondary pitches in, in their sessions as well. So how we work it is we'll generally do um, three reps per set. We'll use a six-ounce ball. We'll use a four-ounce ball. And we'll always finish with the actual standard five ounce ball. And what we'll do is we'll have them, depending upon the pitch, we'll have them throw a strike. We'll have them throw down and away, down and in, up and in, depending upon what the pitch we're working on is in the dirt. And they'll do, they'll try to hit the same mark with a six ounce ball. Then they'll try to hit the same out mark with a four ounce ball and the same mark with a five ounce ball. And this is the second year we're doing this. And I'll tell you, when we did it last year, the kids at first really didn't like it. And I was wondering, hmm, maybe this isn't really such a great thing. They're really not liking it too much. But I, I thought it was so good. And we do it for, we do it for three weeks. Yeah, it's hard. You know, they, they take the six-ounce ball, and because of the weight, they can't get around. So they have a tendency to throw high. And then the four ounce ball, you know, they're driving it right into the ground because mm-hmm. they're, 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 it's moving so fast that they're not re- learning how to adjust their release point. Okay. And what that does is this helps them. And you can watch it over the three weeks. They really, really start, you can start seeing them. They're starting to hit their marks with all different size balls. Mm-hmm. And we do four sets of three reps each on the mound. We always throw to a target and we, uh, you know, we keep track. And by keeping track and keeping score, we actually get more buy-in from the athlete. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's really to help the control and the command. Uh, that's really how how we work on command control in the tunnel, mm-hmm. in the bullpen. I also believe that you can work on command and control in the in the weight room on the strength side. Taking mechanical solutions to athleticism problems is is not the right thing to do. Sure. Um, we bu- we build single leg strength, so you know when they land, um, and on that front foot strike. They, you know, the more stable they are, the more ball and socket congruency we can get at foot strike, and that can keep, that can create a more consistent control issue. Improving anterior and rotary core rotary core strength and stiffness serves as a platform. It's like for the shoulders to rotate on, so it dictates where the hand will be at ball release. Just trying to create that consistency. So the more stable we are at our landing, the better we are at control and command. And I do have to I have to give a shout out one more time to Lance Wheeler. Because he had an amazing, amazing 
tweet that I read one day that spawned a whole blog for me. He said, if you really want to wonder how much stability and strength has to do with control and command, try texting while you're on a treadmill or while you're running um, and see how, how readable that text is. And he's right. And that's what I'm talking about with single leg strength or anterior core strength. Trying to sh- I call it shoot, trying to shoot a cannon from a canoe. Anything that's unstable is going to transfer up the chain and create that instability in the ball and socket. And it's going to make for an unstable throw from pitch to pitch. Now, while we can't, we, while we, we can't repeat, repeatability is very hard. Um, it's almost impossible to repeat exactly, but we can get close if we can land and be as stable as possible in the same way on every pitch from a strength standpoint. What was the quote that you said? Because that one really hit me. The mechanical and athletic problems. That was really good. Can you, can you say that one for us again? That's another Cressy quote. Okay. Don't take mechanical solutions to athleticism problems. Man, that's really Before good. tinkering with mechanics, make sure a pitcher can jog to the mound without tripping first. Mm. You know, and that basically that basically that talks to the young kids. A lot of the young kids, uh, they're launching the ball. They're young. You know, part of it is they're still having fun. But these kids, they can't control their bodies. They can't control that force once they land on that front leg. Mm. So their body's going all over the place. And as they get older and as they get stronger, you can start to see it locks in. And that's when the post-up happens. That's when the transfer of force happens. That's when the anterior core is nice and you can create that stiffness. And now the arm is throwing from a more consistent spot every time. Absolutely fantastic. And so let's, uh, something else that I find really, really interesting is the variance of people that after, say your pitcher starts and he throws, let's say 85 throws, what would you recommend doing next? Especially if they don't have to go to a position to play. That's a better, I would tell you right now, that's a better question for someone who's in the trenches with pitchers all the time. I can honestly tell you that I, I spend very little time thinking about the actual in the trenches, like the coaches that are listening in, that's really, I, I depend on them. I depend on my pitching coaches. I depending on my hitting coach, Mike Rosema. I depend on these guys to actually uh, cover that area. That's something I, I, I really, I'm not as familiar with. I understand. And on a big part of that, and I know you're more on the strength and conditioning side, but do you recommend having them run after throwing that many pitches? Or uh, it used to be poles and now it's sprints or just some sort of cardio to get your heart rate up to, you know, quote unquote, flush your system. But do you have any insight towards that? Well, I'm not a real, uh, I'm not a huge flushing your system fan. Uh, I don't believe in it. It used to be called lactic acid. Mm -hmm. They used to say you're getting the lactic acid out of your system. I know that uh, I believe it was Nolan Ryan used to get on a bike, Mm -hmm. but um, it's actually lactate. It's actually a preferred, it's a preferred substrate that you can use to um, create ATP and get and recover better. Mm -hmm. So I don't really believe in trying to get rid of soreness by running. Um, I don't really feel like running for a pitcher is something that we would do it all. Uh, we we do no running with our pitchers. I actually don't condone it. I do condone sprinting. I do condone five, 10, five shuttles, but you're definitely not gonna use those as a recovery base. My recovery, my recovery for my athletes is breathing, is something we called rebounders mm-hmm. or uh, different things. We, we have Mark Pros here, I getting stim, uh, different things like that we use as far as recovery 
you know, that's, that's what we do running, not a big fan and a good night of sleep. Great night of sleep and lots of water. Fantastic. Well, I really enjoyed that answer. And again, it's something that it varies from every person to every person. So I love getting getting to hear your insight about that. And are are you guys using any sort of data? And you know, what are some of your favorite things to look at and track if you do? Oh, we're using we use a lot of data actually. And okay. every day it's it's we're finding things that we like more. As far as our table assessment goes, I really still we use no data for that. I'm still a huge believer in getting my hands on guys and really feeling end range and things like that. That's there's there's no data involved as far as that goes. But from that point on, after the assessment, as far as using data, we use uh, jump mats, which uh, help us create uh, force velo uh, profiling and jump testing. We use uh, VBT. Uh, we use push bands. If you don't know anything about velocity-based training, it is great for A, grabbing one rep maxes. What velocity-based training is, I'll try to really talk about this in one minute. It's, okay, it's go ahead. This could be a whole podcast on its own. Mm-hmm. Velocity-based training is measuring bar speeds and body speeds by putting a linear transducer on the athlete or on the bar. Okay. And it tells us based on how fast their body's moving or how fast the bar is moving, it correlates to a one rep max. And um, different points of the year when we're talking about that strength speed continuum, absolute strength correlates to a bar speed of under 5.0 meters per second. When we're in accelerative strength, that correlates to uh, 0.50 to 0.75. When we're in a strength speed, that correlates to 0.75 to 1.0 meters per second. So we know every month, we know where we're going, and we also know if a person is moving the same amount of weight, and next week they come in, and they, they rack 375 on the trap bar and now their velocity is quicker, that means that they're moving that weight faster. That means they're producing more power. That means we can put more weight on the bar. Until we see the velocity go up, we don't put more weight on the bar. And then all of a sudden, they're creating more power. So VBT is another thing that we're really, really um, – we're really, really getting into. It's going to change the way pitchers and baseball players are trained in the future. And it's pretty new. Dr. Brian Mann has done amazing studies on it. But uh, we utilize the push bands and we, we put them at the front in, in cubbies and they leave their, key, their car keys or their IDs and guys put push bands on and they download the app onto their phone. And um, we have their velocities in their programs set for where they are in the season, and they put these bands on, and it, it, it allows them to auto-regulate based on how they're feeling. It might be a different weight this day because you're a little – that you prevent overtraining or undertraining that way. So we use the VBT bands. We use Rapsido, which my partner has actually wrote a manual, Baram Shirazi, on how to actually use Rapsido, and it's on the Rapsido website. Him and him – and, uh, our pitching coach, Robbie Avales, who is now out, he's out with the uh, Baltimore Orioles right now, uh, um, working with the minor league teams on uh, pitch design. So we're really using Rapsido and kinematic sequencing. Right now, kinematic sequencing is the new big thing. Uh, I know that there's not a lot of people around doing it. Greg Rose is doing it. I know Driveline's doing it. Uh, it's really, really great. It allows us to determine the efficiency at which a throwing or striking athlete generates and transfers speed through the body. 
you know, each each segment of the body builds on the previous segment in the pitching motion and and the hitting motion, increasing speed up the chain. So each segment of the chain slows down so the next segment can grab on and accelerate. And the way we look at it is, like I was saying earlier, pelvis, thorax, elbow extension, shoulder IR for the pitcher. And we want to make sure that sequence is correct. So that's the other big thing. So I would say the three big things that we're on right now is Rapsido for the pitch design, kinematic sequencing um, with sensors for the uh, for looking at mechanics and sequencing, and VBT in the weight room for uh, checking velocity-based strength and power output. Well, that's fantastic. And Nunzio, you, you sound like a guy that is just on the cutting edge of just trying to learn literally anything and everything that you can get your hands on. And, and so, <laughs> so I just want to I just want to throw it out that you know what's something late, that you've learned lately that's gotten you really interested. Okay, so the first thing, first thing I would say is kinematic sequencing and motion capture. It's the biggest thing that's happening right now, and it really, really, uh, because it's new to me. You know, when you learn how to do something, once you get it, you kind of take advantage of the fact that you know how to do it. But now that um, when something new happens, like you were saying, I'm constantly reading, constantly trying to take my business, and, and I'm trying to constantly try to take my training with our athletes to the next level. So when I learn something new and I'm kind of a, a little bit of a novice at it, that's where I'm at with kinematic sequencing right now. I, I've set a goal for myself. By the time these college kids get in here in the summertime, I need to actually uh, master this kinematic sequencing. I'm gonna go uh, on base. You offer some great, great classes. Um, Greg, Dr. Greg Rose offers some great classes. I'm gonna go take some of those actually next month. And it's game changing. The uh, figuring out, you know, spinal separation and chest speed. And, you know, it looks at the stuff during the throw that's too fast for us to see, even with four, uh, four camera video analysis. So that's something that I'm really, really excited about. And the kids, the kids love it. You, you put sensors on a kid and you start looking at kinematic sequencing and the other kids are looking and, you know, mm -hmm. the next day, three kids are walking in going, hey, can, can, can you put the sensors on me today? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really healthy buy-in for a kid, you know? to be in, interested in kinematic sequencing. Sure, sure, absolutely. And and kids love things that are new. And, you know, I, I try and, and always stay in between doing stuff just because it's new. And if it's not helpful, I don't want to waste their time doing it. But also trying to keep it fresh and because kids love to try new things and it's just their natural curiosity to get out of their comfort zone. I really, really enjoy that. And, and so talk to us a little bit about besides the kinematic sequencing, what's something that you guys do in training that, that your players truly love? They love jump profiling. Um, okay. They love getting on the, uh, there's a, there's a company named smart speed who uh, makes these electronic jump mats or just jump. You can get them at performbetter.com as well. They make these jump mats that electronically tell us your contact time. They tell us how much peak power based off your body weight and your jump height that you're producing. And, um, they love to watch um, how much power they're producing uh, on their jump and then retesting them four weeks later. I'm telling you, you get a kid and you four weeks later, his peak power output went up. You have immediate, immediate buy-in from a kid who knows that he physically saw data that told him that he's gotten more powerful. Once he sees that, he gets complete buy-in from strength training. And I will like to add that I've been using the jump mats for about two and a half years now. And I think maybe one time we've been training kids in the off season. I think there was one athlete who actually didn't experience 
gains in peak power output. And other than that, hundreds of kids. It, it just it just works. Taking their peak power output, training them the right way, putting them back on the mats every four to six weeks, and showing them peak power goes up. They're ready to. They'll show up the next day ready to lift. Fantastic. And this is a little off script, but it's something that I think that you know our amateur kids don't do a good enough job of, and, and that's nutrition. And how do you how do you make that a a staple for your players? Well, while we're not, well, I'm not really a nutritionist. I do have printouts that I've developed that I give to the kids with a a formula based mm-hmm. off of their body weight and how much they want to gain. It tells them how how many healthy calories to consume a day, and then from there, I break it down to proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. We look at the macronutrients, and we uh, and I give them sample foods from the carbohydrate list to use. I give them sample foods from the fats and sample foods from the proteins, sort of a, a nutrition for dummies, for lack of a better term, for these kids, because getting too technical with a kid about how he's going to eat, I mean, he's a kid for God's sake. So being really technical about how a kid's going to eat, you're, you're better off trying to keep it as simple as possible. And um, they buy in, it's basically lean meats, fish and greens and um, good healthy grains. Uh, not a lot of sugar. I try to remove most of the sugar out of the diet as much as you can for a kid and um, try to really get them to increase lean muscle mass and drop body fat. You know, we're looking for, I tell the guys we're looking for like, you know, 12 to 15% body fat for a good, healthy baseball player. Sure. And, you know, with, with the freshmen that we get, most of them, the, you know, and you talked about this earlier with athleticism and strength. Most of them, strength would clean up so many of their different issues and, and gaining some size because they're so skinny. And just by you know having them download an app, we had one kid that, that has gained 30 pounds of good weight since June. And he was at and like, it, like 115 pounds, and now he's almost at 150. And it just it's a world of difference for him. Oh, that's going to transfer either into pitching velocity or exavila for sure. That's, that's, that's one. Well, and you know what? Actually, speed running down the line, too, if it's the right kind of weight. Mm-hmm. If he's gaining muscle weight, that's going to increase speed um, and change of direction speed as well for fielders. Absolutely. And uh, again, our, our strength coach does a phenomenal job. And so we're, we're truly blessed to be able to have him. And uh, Good for him. Yeah, absolutely. But before you go, I you know the, the resource question. So throw out, you, you've talked about Eric Cressy and Greg Rose and uh, Lance Wheeler and, and, all of, and Ron Wolforth and all of those guys are absolutely fantastic resources. But do you have any more that you could share with us? Um, yes. Uh, you know, a really great book that I started with a long time ago was Starting Strength by Mark Ripto. Mm. Awesome, awesome book as far as strength training goes. As far as assessment and learning about the body, Diagnosis and Treatment of Movement Impaired Syndromes by Shirley Sarman is a great book. Eric Cressy's CDs, Optimum Shoulder Performance and Sturdy Shoulders, I would highly recommend those. They're quick, easy to read and um, easy to watch uh, videos and highly informative uh, for, for a person who's trying to get into it. And as far as energy system work and the strength speed continuum and working with with uh, energy systems for for different sports and baseball players. There's a book called Ultimate MMA Training by Joel Jameson. Hmm. Even though it's it's even though it's a book about MMA training, he he really really is a he used to be the strength and conditioning coach for the Seattle Seahawks. Now he trains a lot of the great MMA fighters, but he really really is a knowledgeable guy. He has a a device called a Morpheus that uh, is a recovery device that I use that he sells. 
And his, that, that book, I probably read that book over the last five years. I probably read it five times. It's all ripped up. All my coaches laugh about it when they see me walk in with it. <laughs> it's torn to shreds. It's highlighted all over the place. It's just, it's a really, really great um, resource for learning about energy system. Because I think in baseball, a lot of people are reading it wrong with energy system work. Giving them, giving them too much long distance running. Sure, sure. Training in the different systems, and uh, that's something that that I am really interested in. So I may have to go purchase that. But I, I really, I just want to open up the mic for you. And is before you go, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners? I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for the platform that you gave me today. And if you want to find me, my email is nunzio n u n z i o at rockland r o c k l a n d peak p e a k performance dot com. Okay. My Twitter is at nunzio signore. My Instagram is RPP underscore performance. And the website, if you want to go on it, is rocklandpeakperformance.com. If you want to see more on pitch development and movement and Rhapsodo, you can um, look at my partner, Baram, B-A-H-R-A-M, Shirazi, S-H-I-R-A-Z-I. And you can find him on Twitter as well. And um He's a really, really brilliant guy as far as uh, physics and mm -hmm. understanding movement. And he's really, really, he's sunk himself into uh, Rhapsodo and is really starting to create quite a name for himself here and, you know, you know, on social media as far as being a guy that really understands it. So they're all the places that you can, uh, you can find me. Perfect. And uh, I will make sure I link all of those down in the show notes and uh, Nunzio, it truly was a pleasure, and thank you so much for sharing so much and spending so much time with us today. Oh, it was awesome. I thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group and if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.